you got a Bible, Revelation chapter 2 is where we're at this morning as we continue this series called Seven, taking a look at what Jesus has to say to the church. So we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 2, reading verses 8 to 11 this morning. If you want to turn there and follow along, you can. If not, it'll be on the screen behind me as I read it this morning. Jesus is speaking to the church in Smyrna, and this is what he has to say. He says, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, will not be hurt by the second death. Now, I don't know about you, but in my family, sometimes there are things that you just don't talk about in the family. You know what I'm saying? Like, for some of you, you don't talk about your love for the Longhorns or Aggies, right? That's a real true story for some of you, right? There's just violent opposition within the family. For some of you, you you know what it's like to have those political perspectives or party affiliations every election season when it rolls around, and you just don't talk about those things at family reunions or at Thanksgiving, right? You don't sit around the table and discuss politics. You do it on Facebook, right, where you can just blast people and blow them up without any kind of consequences, right? Some of you know what it's like to be in families where you don't talk about what your aunt did at the family reunion a few years ago. We all remember that. Nobody wants to go back there, right? Right? Or maybe what it's like to have that distant relative who is incarcerated somewhere in prison. It's just things that you don't talk about in the family. And listen, there are many people who are a part of church families across North Texas this morning. Maybe they're in church right now, and there are certain things that many churches that we just don't talk about as a family. And one of the things that we just don't talk about many times in North Texas churches is suffering. Now listen, don't get me wrong, we do talk about some kinds of suffering. We talk about suffering from sicknesses, we talk about suffering from having kids who are going wayward and rebellious. We talk about those kinds of suffering, but to talk about suffering on account of loyalty and love and affection and allegiance to Jesus, those are topics that we don't tend to broach very often in churches. And I think one of the reasons why is because many people suffering for faithfulness to Jesus in our context, it seems so distant and far removed from our experience of Western North American Bible Belt, North Texas Christianity. It seems so far removed from that. It seems so distant from that as if we would ever be called upon to suffer on account of faithfulness and loyalty to Christ. However, I want you to know something that for many people... In many places around the world, the normal Christian life is nothing, has never been, never will be, and is not now a nominal Christian life. Right? You know what nominal means? It means at very low cost. It means the least common denominator. And for many people in many places, the normal Christian life is not a nominal Christian life. It is one that is actually costly. There are sacrifices that are made and suffering that is endured. Listen, several years ago, many of you may remember these images that circulated across social media. But on April 19, 2015, there were two videos purportedly made by the Islamic State that were released on social media channels. 
And there were videos of men in all black with black hoods standing over other men in orange jumpsuits on a beach in northern Africa. And the videos showed them being executed and eventually beheaded. It were grotesque images that were released. See, many of us, when we think of suffering for Jesus, we think of things that happened way back there in history. But I want you to know, two years ago, two and a half years ago, this was taking place across northern Africa and continues to take place in parts and regions around the world as men and women, our brothers and sisters in Christ, are put to death on account of their faith. Because of their loyalty to Jesus, they pay the ultimate price. And we push back from those images because they are, they're, they're distant for us. They're far removed from us, right? For some of us, we've never received as much as a slap on the hand on account of our faith in Christ in North Texas or in North America. But I want you to know the church to which Jesus is riding is well acquainted with what it is to suffer on account of their faith in Christ. A little bit about Smyrna. Smyrna is the only city of the seven that are mentioned in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation that is still in existence as a modern day city today. It's Izmir, Turkey is where the modern-day Smyrna is located. Smyrna was a harbor city on the Aegean Sea, 35 miles north of Ephesus, and it was renowned for its beauty. It was a beautiful city filled with all kinds of luxurious buildings and architecture that was just phenomenal for its day and its time. It, too, was a center of the emperor cult, so it erected temples to Tiberius in A.D. 26. It was the first city to build a temple to the goddess Rome. As it worshipped Rome and the empire, it had famous temples to Zeus and Sibyl connected to by majestic malls. In addition, one of the things you need to understand that's important to the understanding what Jesus is saying to this church in Smyrna is this. There was a large Jewish population that lived there. And following the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, as the Jews were scattered, there was much anti-Semitism against the Jews in that day as they were persecuted. But Rome had given them some kind of immunity from the worship of, of the emperor. And so they didn't have to bow the knee to the emperor. They could worship Yahweh. But the Jews felt like the Christians who were now moving in and advancing the gospel and preaching and planting churches, they were threatening their autonomy before the Roman government. And so the Jews began to persecute the Christians in Smyrna. They began to oppose them, not only with their words, but also with their deeds. And they began to face violent opposition from the Jewish synagogues there. See, the church at Smyrna knew what it was like to be burned at the stake. They knew what it was like to be fed to the lions. They knew what it was like to have holes drilled in their skulls and molten lead poured in while they were still alive. And I don't say all these things just to kind of incite you to this grotesque pictures. I say these things because this is what was happening. These things were true. They were taking place on account of people's faithfulness to Jesus. And listen, in America, in America, Christians, we're not being burned alive and we're not being beheaded here in the States. But listen, we, we, we have, we've entered into a season of history in which it, it's, it's evident, even in some of the most staunch Bible Belt communities, that there is a turning of the tide in which we're progressively facing more opposition, progressively facing more slander and ridicule being misunderstood, maligned, or mistreated. And we would do well to wake up to the reality that the church in Smyrna knew from experience to wake up to the reality of this, and here it is, church, that affliction is the rule, not the exception. That it is the rule and not the exception. 
See, listen, I want you to understand something. That, that, that in 2016, it's a little, did a little research, right? In 2016, the United States had 323 million, a little over 323 million people that called it home, which is roughly 4.3% of the world's population called the United States home. The United States has existed as a nation for 240 years, which rings in at 4% of the last 6,000 years of recorded human history. So think about it this way. The U.S. is 4% of the world's population and has existed for 4% of recorded history. So 4% of humanity and 4% of history has been dominated by relative ease and comfort of being a Christian in this nation. The other 96% of humanity and the other 96% of history, the story of Christianity has been one that has faced opposition, it has faced persecution, it has faced tribulation, it has faced hardship, it has faced suffering. The other 96% have known that affliction is the rule, not the exception. But for us, we often think of affliction and tribulation and hardship and distress on account of our faith as the exception, not the rule. And so we're surprised by it whenever it comes upon us. But I want you to know that the Bible, the pages of the New Testament, are littered with testimony to the contrary. Listen to a few of the things the scriptures teach us. Mark 8.31, when Jesus says this, he says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus says, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to be maligned, I'm going to be rejected. Matthew 10, Jesus says, you should expect the same thing. In Matthew 10, 24 and 25, he says, A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they called the master of the house Beelzebub, the prince of demons, how much more will they malign those of his household? Jesus says you should expect to be misunderstood. You should expect to be maligned. You should expect to be mistreated. In Acts 5, right, the, the apostles are brought before a council, a legal council, because they have been preaching in the name of Jesus and the council demands they no longer speak the name of Jesus any longer and then they beat them and release them and in Acts 5 41 the apostles when they leave the presence of the council it says they were rejoicing they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for Jesus name in Romans 8 Paul reaches the pinnacle of this great exposition as he talks about how nothing can separate us from the love of God which is for us in Christ Jesus. But before he gets to the height of that, he walks through a valley because he says you're children of God and if you're children, then you're also heirs with Christ and if heirs, provided that you suffer with him in order that you may be glorified with him. Suffering litters the pages of the New Testament. Philippians 1.29 For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for him. It's something God grants to us. We don't think of it that way, do we? First Peter chapter 4, 19, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter assumes there will be occasions in your life, if you're following Jesus, that you will suffer on account of your obedience to him and that that is God's will. We don't think of it that way either. 1 Peter 4.12, the last text I'll show you this morning. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. 
Peter says, don't be shocked, don't be alarmed, don't be surprised when things begin to happen as you're walking with Jesus, following Jesus, and obeying Jesus. The church at Smyrna knew that. And there's five things that Jesus says they were experiencing on account of their loyalty to him. The first one he says is tribulation. Right, it's kind of a catch-all term for opposition that they were facing. Uh, uh, Afflictions they were experiencing, internal distress and angst that began to rise up in them because they were following Jesus. The pressure to conform to a certain way of thinking and a certain way of acting. Or they had to be, they were treated with hostility and harassed. Second thing he says is poverty. It's poverty. Now listen, this word that, that Jesus uses here is no common word for poverty. It's not like they just only had a few changes of clothes in their closet. Right? Or they, could, they only had ramen noodles to eat. Right? That's not the kind of poverty Jesus is talking about. The word that he uses here literally means this, to be destitute of any earthly goods. And what was happening in the city of Smyrna, because it was a beautiful, prestigious city in the ancient world that was, had all kinds of architecture and beautiful homes. You had all these kind of up and coming, these risers in society. And when the church moved into Smyrna and began to preach the gospel and people began to come to faith, He had all these cultural elites who were climbing the cultural ladder, societal ladder, who began to come to faith in Jesus. And as they came to faith in Jesus, they began to experience opposition and persecution. And what happened was they were stripped of their jobs. They were stripped of their homes. And they were destitute, lost family members, and thrown out onto the street. This is not a metaphor for some kind of other thing. This is destitute, broke poverty. Broke as a joke out on the street with nothing to their name and no influence. He says, I know it. That third thing, he says, slander. Because of the Jews there in Smyrna who, who began to rise up against the church, the Jews were slandering the church and they were instigating the opposition. In fact, Jesus says they've, they're, not, they're not Jews at all, but they're actually a synagogue of Satan. That's, that's strong language, isn't it? A gathering of Satan. What is Jesus saying? The word Satan is a Hebrew term imported over into the Greek and it means this, it means adversary. That the Jews in Smyrna, because of their opposition to Jesus and Jesus' people, they had set themselves up as a gathering of adversaries against God's kingdom and against God's people and against God's Messiah. And so they were being slandered, they were being maligned, they were being accused oftentimes of incest because they called their, everyone brother and sister. Right? Even their husbands and wives. They're like sisters in Christ. Like, what's something weird going, sketchy going on over there? Right? They were accused of cannibalism because they talked about drinking the blood and eating the body of Christ. They were misunderstood and misrepresented across the city. They were facing forth imprisonment. Like literal imprisonment in jail, in stockades, in cells. And they were facing death. Oftentimes, imprisonment in the ancient world was a waiting room for capital punishment as they were awaiting to be put to death. This is what the church at Smyrna was facing on account of their loyalty to Jesus. See, suffering church always has been and will always be the result of a faithful people who are seeking to live as a gospel counterculture in the place where God has planted them. It will always be a part of that experience. And listen, if you're in the room this morning, you identify as a Christian. You say, I'm someone that God has saved me. I've passed from death to life. And you are never 
maligned. You're never misunderstood. You're never uh, mistreated. You're never uh, slandered. You're never spoken against. You never experience opposition from other people or even from other spiritual principalities because you know what's going on here really? Is that there is a great enemy who is against God and his people. It's called, it's called the devil. Right? And, and listen, I'm, I'm not going to start, we're not going to start right, talking about demons everywhere. But listen, there is an enemy, a real adversary who, is, who stands in opposition to all that God would accomplish. And if you never begin to experience spiritual warfare in your life, if you never sense that there are forces that are against you, that are standing in opposition to you, through social opposition and spiritual opposition, then you have to ask yourself this question, church. Have you exchanged the normal Christian life for a nominal one? Have you exchanged the normal Christian life for a nominal one? One with very low cost, with the least common denominator, and with no resistance. Let me ask you this question. Is there in your life, is there an upstreamness about your life? Right? When everything else around you is just flowing downstream, right, with the current, everything's being sucked down the river into the ocean. Is there an upstreamness about your life where you're working against the current in some places? Right? Now you don't look at the culture and say, everything's bad and everything's going to hell in a handbasket, we should just blow it all up, right? You know, not that kind. But what I'm saying is that there are places where you're working upstream because there are values and a vision for life that cut against the grain of the prevailing cultural narratives in which you're living. Is there an, the stories you're being told that you're writing a different story because there's another story that's been written on the pages of Scripture and there's an upstreamness about you. And so yes, you're fighting against the current and you're facing some opposition. If there are never occasions like that in your life, then you have to ask yourself this question. Have I exchanged the normal Christian life for a nominal Christian life? One with no cost, a very low bar, and the least common denominator. Now, one marker of this, of this exchange of the normal for the nominal is this. Like, you do a lot of hearing without much heeding. Right? You do a lot of hearing without much heeding. So you hear without heeding. Listen, at the end of each of these letters, Jesus says that he who has ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, when Jesus speaks of hearing what the Spirit says to the churches, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, he is not talking, he's not saying this. Pay attention to the phonetic sounds that are passing across the little membrane inside of your ear called your eardrum and hear those sound waves as they resonate there. That's not what he's saying. All throughout the Bible, whenever we're called to hear the word of the Lord, it's a call to heed the word of the Lord. To, to not just hear, pay attention to the phonetics, but pay attention to practicing what you hear. Practicing what you hear. And listen, there are several things that keep us from heeding the words of Jesus. And the first, for some of us in the room, it might be this, that we don't have ears to begin with. You're like, I looked in the mirror this morning, they're there these little appendages of cartilage that God fixed to the side of my skull with the little membrane that allows me to, that's not the ears that I'm talking about. See, even in the Gospels, Jesus says in the parables, he says, let he who has ears 
understand. And what he's saying is this, that if you understand the spiritual truth that I'm trying to communicate to you, then act on it. Put it into practice. Build your life around it. And listen, if, if, you, if, if, you, if the word of God goes forth and you sit in services at churches all across our community and you hear there are sound waves passing across your eardrum, but they don't captivate you. There's no beauty in the Bible to you. There's no glory in the word of God for you. There's no, there's no light there for you. There's no fire there for you. It could be that you are like a deaf man or woman listening to Bach or Beethoven. And the symphony is playing all around you. And there are people on stage with instruments who are they're finely tuned and they can execute with exquisite perfection. And yet you hear nothing passing across your ears other than noise. Do you have ears to begin with? Another thing that keeps us from heeding is this. It's the fear of man. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but man, this is so pervasive. I'm going to press on it a little bit more. It's the fear of man. And I think the fear of man shows itself in a couple of ways in our life. One, in, in the love of comfort. The love of comfort. Right? Listen, I ain't going to lie. When I walked in here this morning and the heaters hadn't been running all night, first thing I did was walk over to the, to the, to the thermostat, crank those suckers up because it was cold, Right? You're like me, right? And the older I get, man, I used to always make fun of my parents because um, when, when I'd go into their house, man, it was just hot all the time. Uh, and, and the older I get, man, the, 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 the less it seems like my body's able to handle the cold. Because right? I love to be comfortable. And I imagine you do as well. Right? And so what we end up doing, I, I love the fact what Brian said earlier, we, what we end up doing is we just kind of put our head down, we mind our business, keep to ourselves, right? Kind of stay quiet, right? We work hard, we save, we send our kids to school, we save for retirement, we plan some vacations, we go to church on Sundays, maybe we go to a life group and are connected in community, maybe we go do a service project once a year, but we just kind of keep our heads down when everything's swirling around us, we just kind of keep our heads down and keep to ourselves. Why? Because we love comfort. We love it. We lap it up. We crave it. And listen, that is evidence of the fear of man in your life. If there is such a love for comfort, that listen, that the, that the name of Jesus never comes off of your lips except in this room, that's a, that's, that's a love for comfort. It's rooted in a fear of man. Right? Another way that you can see the fear of man in your life is, is in the, not only if, if the name of Jesus is never on your lips outside of this room, but listen, the fear of engaging in evangelism. The fear of saying, hey, let me tell you a story. All right, about how my life got turned upside down. Right, I'm not the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. All right, but I met this guy named Jesus. He revolutionized my life. If you're afraid of engaging in evangelism, right? If you're afraid of even inviting people to church, right? of even extending an invitation, come. Come be a part of what God's doing at this, at this local church. If you're afraid of inviting people to church because, you're, because you're, you're, you're afraid or embarrassed of this kind of ragtag band of Jesus followers that assemble here every Sunday morning or students on Wednesday nights, Listen, that is not just self-respecting behavior. 
that is a heart that is gripped by the fear of man. Because you're so afraid of what they'll think. If you're afraid to be baptized and publicly sign up and say, I belong to Jesus. And to be immersed in the waters. Right? Not just for a photo op where y'all get to stand up here with your family and take a picture and everybody gets to celebrate and they clap whenever you come up. But if you're afraid to come up here and be baptized and to say to the world, I belong to Jesus. He saved me. He's changing me. He's revolutionized me. My love and loyalty belong to him. My allegiance and affection belong to him. I'm publicly identifying with Jesus. Listen, that is not just a childhood fear for many of us. A childhood fear that, that I don't want all eyes on me. I don't want to be the center of attention. At the deepest level, you know what that is? It's a fear of man that keeps us from publicly identifying as a follower of Jesus. Fear of man manifests itself in so many different ways in our lives. So are, do you have ears to hear? Are you terrified of what other people would think? See, those things, if, if, those are, if, 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 if you're terrified and afraid of what the people are going to think or say, here's what will happen, is you will look down, you will mind your business, and there will be no upstreamness in your life. But you'll just kind of flow with the current downstream. That's where naturally we all move if we're not working upstream. And so what does it take to work upstream? What does it take to make this exchange of the nominal for the normal? Right? In the time that we have left, I want to share with you several things that Jesus says in this text. All of that was introduction to get you to this. What do we do? Jesus gives us two commands. I want to bring them into one and say this. That what Jesus says, you get to dismiss fear and walk in faithfulness by faith. There are things you have to believe that have to be the bedrock foundation of your life that you have to come back to over and over again to dismiss your fears. Jesus says in verse 10, do not be afraid of the heightened tribulation that you're about to enter into. And then in the latter part of verse 10, he says, be faithful unto death. Two things. You've got to dismiss your fear and you've got to walk in faithfulness. That's part of living an upstream life. And, and, and the way that you do that is not just by willpower, right? It's not by white-knuckling it, right? You know what I'm saying? It's not you just, you just, you just grit your teeth and you squeeze your fists together and you're just going to get it done. It's by faith. It's by believing certain things to be true, regardless of what you can put your eyes on in the moment, and there are five things here. I'm going to run through them quick. But five things that Jesus says you've got to believe if you're going to exchange the nominal for the normal. And the first one is this. You've got to believe. You've got to believe that he walks with you. You know, one of the, one of the things, one of the things that is most terrifying for us in the midst of suffering is to feel like we're all alone. You ever been there before? You felt like everyone had abandoned you. Everyone had walked away from you. Everyone had forgotten about you. That even in a crowded room, no one understood. No one knew the troubles that you had seen. No one knew the hardships that you had endured. 
right? No one could grasp the weight of the pressure that you were feeling. One of the most fearful things in all the world is to feel abandoned and to feel alone. It's scary, isn't it? To face suffering as if you're by yourself. You don't believe me? You ever watch a scary movie by yourself? Right? Those moments of suspense, what do you do? You start looking around like, nobody here. Uh, you watch an episode of Stranger Things late at night and there's like, you know, nobody's around you. You're like, oh, I can't even go to bed or turn the light off. Uh, you're, you're gripped by fear. Why? Because you want somebody else there. What do you do when you get sh- shocked in suspense? You reach over, right? And you grab their hand or you grab their leg. You're like, there's s- somebody else is with me. And listen to what Jesus says to this church at Smyrna. He says in the midst of their suffering in verse 9, he says, I know. I, I know. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I know the slander. I know that you're about to be imprisoned. And I know that some of you have and are about to lose your life. I know. Church, he knows. And he, listen, he doesn't know in just an intellectual sense but he knows in an experiential sense. Jesus doesn't know about suffering from a textbook. He knows about suffering from his experience in life, in a broken, fallen, sinful world that stood opposed to him. The first thing you have to believe by faith to dismiss your fear and walk in faithfulness is that he walks with you. That he knows that you are not alone. Second thing that he says so you've got to believe that he works in you. That he works in you in the midst of suffering. You see, so many of us tend to have a very naturalistic outlook on life and to believe that the opposition that we face is only social. But Jesus says it's spiritual. He says the, 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 the government that's about to throw you into prison, what's behind that are these spiritual forces and principalities and powers in a, in a, in a, in a plane of existence that you cannot see with your eyes. And he says the one who is the chief adversary of God, the devil himself is about to throw you in prison, he says. And what his intention in your life is to do is to destroy you through it. He wants to destroy your faith. He wants to cause you to question whether or not God really is benevolent. Is God really charitable? Is God really loving? Would God really put you through all of this? He's seeking to destroy you. But you know what Jesus is doing? He's got another purpose. In fact, he even says it in the text that you're going to be thrown into prison that you may be tested. Who tests you? Not the devil, but the Lord. Because what the devil purposes in your life to destroy you, here's what Jesus is doing. He's distilling you. And some of you are like, I thought this was a Baptist church. But you know what the process of distillation involves? It involves a lot of heat applied to a container of liquid and then the application of that heat, it separates the types of liquids from each other. It burns some off and it leaves some behind. That's exactly what's going on in your life right now. 
If you're suffering on account of loyalty to Jesus, you have to believe that in that opposition, in that affliction, that is the norm, not the exception, that he's working in you. He's burning things out of your life that he could burn out of your life in no other way. No amount of comfort, no amount of ease could get rid of the fear of man in your life. It would only support it. Don't you see that? He's burning those things away. And in the process, he's strengthening your faith. I'm going to switch metaphors on you here for a minute. Listen, I've, I've run all of my life from the time I was in high school to now at 40 years of age. I've been a runner. But not all those years. Right? They've kind of been, I've been on the wagon and off the wagon and on the wagon and off the wagon and got injured, right? Out for a long time, trying to get back into it. And every time I've come back into it, right, I remember those days in which I could run 10, 12, 15 miles and just kind of grind it out. It was good. I had the runner's high afterwards. And then then when I come back into it, like two miles, (gasps) I'm struggling to breathe. My legs feel like they're jellified, right? They're just kind of like flopping around there underneath me. But the longer that I continue to engage in that, you know what happens? You know what happens in physical training? It's that your body is getting weaker and stronger at the same time. See, in suffering, you feel like you're getting weaker all the time. But you know what's going on? And really, behind the scenes, God is strengthening your faith to trust him with things that you never would have trusted him with otherwise. Just like your body, as there's little small tears in those muscles in the, in, in the, in, in, as you participate in that activity and then when you rest, all of a sudden the, those, those tears heal up and your muscles grow stronger and larger. And they, they broke down again and they grow stronger and larger and they broke down again and they grow stronger and larger. And some of us go, can it just stop? Not if you want to continue to grow. And you have to believe that he works in you. Third thing that you have to believe by faith is believe that he knows and sets the limits of your affliction. Jesus says you're gonna be, there's going to be a heightened of tribulation for 10 days. Now most scholars and commentators believe that that 10-day period is a reference back to the book of Daniel and in both places they're referring to a temporary time frame. Think about the book of Revelation. If you fast forward to the end of the book of Revelation, you get to this time period toward the end when Jesus returns, establishes his rule on the earth for a thousand years. And then the devil and his demons and everyone who refused to bend their knee to Jesus is thrown into the lake of fire and he rules and reigns forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Think about 10 days in light of a thousand years or the annals of eternity. It's a temporary short season that Jesus has set. He, he goes back elsewhere in, the, in this same text. He says, I'm the first and the last. I'm the one who holds all things in my hands. I'm the one who, who started all this and I'm the one who's gonna bring it all to a close. I control everything. There's nothing outside my sight, nothing outside my purview and this is a limited window of testing that your faith might grow to be strong students in your school as you swim upstream, as you love the unlovely, as you face opposition in the midst of that. He's testing, he's building faith in you. It's a limited window. He sets 
the limits. There is an expiration date on your suffering. But you know what? Glory lasts forever. Fifth and finally, he says, oh no, I'm sorry, not finally. I've got two more. They're going to be quick. Believe that he will reward you. Believe that he will reward you. Listen, Jesus is so generous. He is so kind. He is so giving. That in verses 10 and 11, Jesus promises a rich reward to those who are faithful unto death. He promises victory and he promises immunity. He says, for those who are faithful unto the death, I will give them the crown of life. You know what that crown was? It was a victor's crown. Smyrna was known in the ancient world for its games and competitions. And those who won the competitions, they received these crowns woven out of branches on their heads as a victor's crown of those who won in the contest. And Jesus says, for those who are faithful to Jesus, they do not recant their loyalty to him, even to the point of death. He says, I will give them the crown of victory. Their faith has conquered this world. But he also promises immunity. He says, right, for those who conquer, the second death won't even touch them. They'll be immune to it. The second death in the lake of fire won't hurt them, won't harm them, won't singe a hair on their head. Jesus promises victory and immunity, but notice how he promises it. Man, this is beautiful. It really, this got me this week. Listen, when, you, when, when those 30 Ethiopian Christians in those orange jumpsuits on that beach in North Africa, whenever they breathed their last breath and they stepped into eternity, you know who was there to greet them? Not Abraham. Not Moses. Not Jacob. Not Joshua. Not Peter, James, or John, like the, the, the chief of the apostles. Not Paul or Timothy or Silas or Barnabas or Titus, none of those pastors in the early church. You know who was there to greet them and crown them? It was Jesus himself. He says, I will give them the crown of life. That's who crowned them, church. That those who would experience swim upstream and face opposition, that whenever they step into eternity, that the Lord himself would say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. Do you believe that he's a generous, reward-giving God? And now finally, You have to believe that he has gone before you. Listen, one of the things I've appreciated about all the the bosses that I've had and the best bosses that I've had in my life was this, is that they never asked me to do something that they were not willing to do themselves. Never once. I had a great boss. It was my first job in college. She was the dean of students. I was a dorm director. And we would show up and unload furniture at the start of every new semester and she would be out there in her t-shirt and shorts right alongside of us unless there were other official administrative duties that she had to tend to based on her responsibilities. She was right there alongside of us unloading furniture. The dean of students at the college. She never did expect us to do anything she was not willing to do for herself or do herself. Listen, I want you to know that Jesus 
He is that kind of Lord. You've got to see that he's gone before you, church. That he doesn't say, be faithful unto death. Endure opposition and hardship. Bear up underneath the reproach of swimming upstream with values and a vision for life that are competing with the world around you. Notice what Jesus, how he identifies himself. The one who needs no introduction. This is what he says. I'm the first and the last. The one who what? Died. And has come to life. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, that it, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And that God raised him up from the grave and he crowned him, gave him all authority. Do you believe that he has gone before you, that he's walked this path? The path that you're on of opposition, the path that you're on of suffering, the path that you're on of persecution, the normal Christian life was the life that Jesus led. Do you believe that he's gone before you, but not only has he gone before you, but he's done it for you? That he's done it for you, church. That he was beaten, he was flogged, he was crucified, he was strung up on a cross in order that my sins might be forgiven, in order that your sins might be forgiven, in order that you might know the beauty and glory of God as a good and gracious Father. That he's gone before you. There's a man in the, name, in the church at Smyrna when they received this letter by the name of Polycarp. He was probably in his mid-20s at the time. And many think he was probably even the bishop at that time because he was eventually the bishop of Smyrna over all the churches in the city. And 60 years later, at the age, in his mid-80s, in A.D. 154, he was brought before the Roman proconsul. And they pleaded with him to, to, to renounce his faith in Jesus. They pleaded with him to turn away from his testimony of Christ. And I can imagine that the words of Jesus were ringing in his ears as he had read them to the church when they had received the revelation from John. They were ringing in his ears, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And the proconsul threatened, he said, we got wild beasts back here. And Polycarp said, bring them on. Go get them. <laughs> what are you waiting for? He said, we're going to burn you at the stake. And he said, well, don't even affix me to it. In those days, they would nail people to the stake before they set them on fire so they couldn't squirm their way off or away from their flames. He said, don't even, don't even tie me, don't even fix me to the stake. And before he died, his response to the Roman proconsul that was trying to persuade him to abandon his faith in Jesus was this. Polycarp says, 86 years I have served Christ and he never did me any injury. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And without refusal, they lit the flames. And the story is told that a great gust of wind blew up and blew the flames away from him so that the Romans had to come over and pierce him with a sword and kill him and his body fell limp there on the pile of wood and eventually the flames consumed him. He was faithful unto death. Listen, church, the normal Christian life is not a nominal one. It's one that's lived upstream. Will you believe that he is with you, that he's working in you, that he sets the limits, that he will reward you, and that he has gone before you. And by faith, dismiss all your fears.
and walk in faithfulness, no matter the cost. Let's pray together. Father, we come today rejoicing in your Son, the Lord Jesus, who for our sakes was made sin so that we who are sinners might be forgiven. That he humbled himself and became obedient to death on a cross that we who are filled with pride might know the tenderness of your touch. And Father, I pray for us as a church. I pray for the church in the United States. And I pray for our brothers and sisters across the globe who are more than misunderstood, but who are rallying together every Sunday in secrecy out of fear for their lives. Would you make us, God, by your grace, faithful unto death? Help us to dismiss our fears with these truths that we might walk in faith and believe them and be used by you as a faithful witness that is living an upstream life. We pray in Jesus' name.